gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And today we're going to talk about women and work. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is, you know, in Christian circles, it is a common thing. You go to like any reformed Facebook group and you see, should a woman work outside the home? And I think there's a lot of history of this not understood well. And Rachel really is a bit of an expert on this because she did so much research from her book. And I am going to link her book in the episode notes because it's going to be one of the best resources for you um, if you want to learn more about that. So I guess we'll just get started. I'm, I'm going to ask, almost ask Rachel questions and let her really talk about it. Uh, so Rachel, why don't you talk about women and work in the ancient and biblical world? Yeah, I thought it would be helpful just to kind of go through, like, historically some views and and what we can see through history. Um, we start with, you know, the ancient and biblical world. Um, one of the quotes I used in my book was a, is uh, by Lynn Kohick. She's got a couple of really good books um, that are really helpful in the history, um, especially about women uh, in the biblical world. So, what she says is, women did almost every type of work that was done by men, with a few important exceptions. Men did not work as midwives or wet nurses, or nurses for that matter, and women were not soldiers or politicians. Women took care of the family farm, laboring in the fields or watching the herds. Women bought, sold, rented, and owned property. They ran businesses, employed staff, and owned slaves. They were artists, artisans, and vendors. And just gives you a kind of a picture of, of the breadth of work that was done by women in uh, ancient biblical times. One of the things I read this week from, cause I, I read some different articles on this and one, one of the articles, I, I should have saved the quote, but it says something like women have always worked. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. how, how have they worked? They've always worked very hard in in different things. You know, life is easier in many ways for us now, but if you, th I think about my great grandparents, which I know we're not talking, you know, 20th century yet, but Think of all the work that had to be done with the farm and stuff like that. Everybody pitched in. And, exactly. you know, even before what would have been my great grandparents getting married, you know, before the 1915 or something like that, you think of even before that, how much, how much work needed to be done. Exactly. Um, and that's always been like throughout history, uh, what you'll see from the majority of people across times, across cultures, um, even today in most cultures, uh, men and women are both working in order to provide for their families. Uh, what that looks like varies. Um, just like this says that there's some work that, I mean, obviously men are not going to be wet nurses, but some work that is done by men more than women or women more than men, but everybody's working. Uh, and that's, that's just 
that's life, right? It takes a lot of work to keep a family going. Um, so in ancient uh, Greek and Rome, uh, women worked. Uh, they would raise their kids. They also cared for their households. Uh, some worked as domestic help in other homes. Uh, they worked in family shops and businesses. And uh, although typically the work that women did is would be considered beneath men, uh, it's not the work that men would do. Um, it's one of the things Amy talks about, Amy Bird talks about it in, um, I want to say No Little Women. Um, and she's quoting another author. So, But what she's talking about there is that when in Ephesians 5, when Paul gives that list of uh, ways that uh, husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church and by washing them with the word and cleansing, all the words that are used there are work that were typically done by slaves or by women. Um, men, especially free men, didn't do this kind of work. And so it's an interesting uh, challenge to uh, the preconception or preconceived notions that men of the time had about what was appropriate work for men and women, that Paul calls them to do work that would have been considered beneath them. So, Rachel, would you say that historically there's been discussions um, like we even have today, what's appropriate for men and what's appropriate for women? Yes. Um, I, I think in some ways it wouldn't have been discussed so much as just assumed um, okay. in, in earlier generations. Uh, there wasn't a question so much about it, although you see it pop up occasionally, um, especially later in history. Um, yeah. Uh, some of the things that you see uh, in the early church, you see that women were patrons and supporters of the church, uh, which means that they were donating um, uh, funds that they had or opening their household. You think about Lydia uh, and her household. Um and she, the church meets there in her home. That was fairly common in the early church. Um, and one of the things uh, that I find really fascinating is that Christian, Christianity was so appealing to women that the Roman emperor ordered Christian missionaries to stop um, proselytizing, stop uh, preaching to women, and want them to stop becoming Christians. Fascinating to me. That is very that is very fascinating. And you know what? This is probably not related whatsoever, but I swear that the Mormon missionaries do their rounds during the day when they're going to catch women. And I've heard so many stories. So there's ways um, in which women, I, I that's just, it's not something that I can prove. I'm just, as a stay-at-home mom, they would always come like middle of the day. And that was witnesses that, too. I'm trying to think about who yes, usually see them. Mm -hmm. That's true. And then, um, I know several situations. In fact, we had neighbors two times where this happened, where the wife became Mormon and the, the husband didn't. And um, in one of the situations later, he he did. Um, I don't know. Maybe women are more receptive to listening. At, who knows? Not that becoming Mormon is a good thing. It's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the, the uh, insults at the time that was said about Christianity is that it was a religion for women and slaves. Um, think about who who was coming to faith in the early church. It was a lot of women and slaves. And also fascinating. Was um, there a difference in um, conversions depending on class too? Maybe. Although I know a lot of the women who were coming to faith were prominent women. Um, oh, that's true. We even saw that, mm -hmm. that with our Reformation women. Mm -hmm. So, looking at the examples that we have in Scripture, we can see different kinds of work that women did. Uh, of course, you see that Ruth um, went out and gleaned in the fields as a way that widows and uh, the poor could provide for themselves would be through um, gleaning. Um, you see women in the Old Testament working as uh, livestock for their uh, families, animal, or sorry, working for as uh, shepherdesses or um, otherwise caring for the livestock, which is part of their family's business. And, you know, livestock isn't a side business. Right? The herds are part of the family's wealth or income. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. You have Rachel taking care of um, her father's uh, animals. And you know that she had brothers, so it wasn't just that there were only girls to do it. Um, 
you see uh, Zipporah caring for family livestock. That's Moses' wife. Um, of course, with the Proverbs 31 woman, you see all the ways uh, that she's caring for her family and the work that she's doing and you know, various things. She's uh, feeding her family, her, her household. She's considering a field and buying it. She's um, then plants a vineyard with what she earns. She makes garments and sells them. It, there's, there's a lot of work involved, different types of work involved in what she's doing. Uh, of course, when you're talking about Proverbs 31, don't need, don't miss out on the other women that are there, uh, the women who are working for the Proverbs 31 woman are uh, female servants. They are also active in business, uh, and you know servants were a significant part of the income of the economy at the time. Um, but when we're considering the work that's being done, the, the women who are working for uh, the household there are just as much, you know, godly women working for their families and for the, for the, the good of um, society as the Proverbs 31 woman, the lady of the house. Fascinating. Yeah. One of the things I, I keep thinking when you were talking about Proverbs 31 is I often hear in some of the more patriarchal circles, they talk about Pro- Proverbs 31 as if the Proverbs 31 woman was a stay-at-home mom, you know? Right. And I'm like, are we reading the same chapter here? Right. Yeah. Um, I think I've said before that there's some very wooden interpretations of this where um, women can work uh, according to those guys. Uh, women are allowed to work uh, if it's like a family business or it's okay if they are in real estate, they can buy and sell property. Um, it, it's fascinating to me to, to take that and be like, okay, just very strictly, you can do these things. And, you know, if we were going to be that strict about, you know, there ha- it has to be directly applied or mentioned in scripture for it to be an appropriate um, uh type of employment, you know, modern men would not be able to be what bankers, well, I guess there are some bankers, bankers, lawyers, doctors, uh, engineers, scientists. There's a lot of of careers that aren't mentioned specifically in scripture. Um, You know, should we all be farmers working in the fields? And, you know, those are the things that are mentioned most commonly. Um, some other examples of, of women working in various areas in scripture. Um, I love this example in Nehemiah when the uh, exiles return to build the temple and the city walls. Uh, one example given is a man whose daughters are working with him to build the walls. Uh, so working in construction. You see too that a number of the women in scripture have, like the Proverbs 31 woman, have men and women who are working for them. Abigail has male servants who follow her commands the Shunammite woman uh, also has servants uh, that she directs, and you know, having male and female servants was very common in biblical times, uh, and they would have been expected to obey what the wife or the uh, lady of the house said, as, as well as the, the man of the house. And you see it in the New Testament, like I mentioned with Lydia, certainly she would have had people who worked for her, and uh, women as well as men would have been slave owners at the time of the early church. So this, this would kind of go against the idea that we've seen in some quote unquote complementarian teachings that a woman can have no kind of authority over a man um, mm-hmm. in recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. It literally talks about, it's been a long time since I read it, so mm-hmm. I might not get this verbatim here, but it talks about, you know, if, if a woman has to, be a boss over a man in the workplace that she has to be careful not to, um, to have unbiblical authority over him. Right. A few commentators point out that when Paul gives instructions to masters and slaves in the new Testament, that those aren't just male masters. There would have been women uh, who are being told how to, to um, treat their slaves. So it's, even in that society that was very patriarchal, uh, patriarchal, um, women still had some uh, roles of authority over others uh, within the household. Also in the New Testament, uh, speaking of Lydia, she was a seller of purple cloth and she had her own household to support. Uh, you have Dorcas, who was 
providing for the, the widows in Joppa. Priscilla, who works alongside her husband, Aquila, in the tent-making business. Um, in 1 Timothy 5.16, it tells women, believing women, that they needed to provide for any dependent widows in their households. The verse says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So there's uh, the believing women are told to provide for uh, anyone in their household who has, or anyone in their family who has needs. Um, also, have many examples in scripture of women providing for the needs of those in ministry. Um, you have the Shunammite woman in Second Kings who provides for Elisha, and you know, they give her she and her husband provide a food and a place for Elisha to rest. Uh, in the New Testament, the women provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their means, as Luke says. And as we mentioned, a lot of the New Testament women provided for the early church and hosted church meetings in their homes. Uh, this is Lydia, Priscilla, and uh, Nympha. So what we see in these examples is that women were working in the home, from home, in family businesses, alongside their husbands, for themselves and working for others. Uh, women are buying and selling goods and property in the marketplace, uh, inheriting property, uh, buying and selling property, and working in a variety of industries from domestic help to construction. So it's quite and, a wide variety. And it's clear they are contributing to the financial needs of their family. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the big change that happens um, is going to be when we talk about the move from a uh, pre-industrial agrarian society into the industrial revolution and post-industrial revolution and what that does to family economy and to um, ideas about workforce and appropriate work. Um, you know, as we saw with uh, in the quotes about ancient and biblical times, um, pre-industrial revolution, men and women are often working side by side in family businesses and on farms. Um, people were doing what they needed to survive. I found a great quote. Um, this one didn't make the book when I was writing, but uh, it's from a textbook for Texas history that I did with the boys. And it's an interview with a woman who is writing about her life. Um, it's it was printed in 1937. So if you're thinking like eight, late 1800s is when this woman was talking about what her life was like. And I'm going to read it because just this is just what life was like for her growing up. So she says, this is a little of my day. When you first get up in the morning before daybreak, you start your fire in the wood stove or the chimney and put your coffee on. Then just as you get light, it's getting light over the hills, you go after the calves. When you bring back the calves, you milk the cows, then bring the calves to their mother their mother cows. Leaving them for a while, you fix breakfast, which is a big meal. After breakfast, at a time when people are getting up in the cities nowadays, you skim the milk and make the butter, feed the dogs, cats, and hog, hogs the clabber, and turn the calves into their pasture and the cows in theirs. When the butter is made and the dishes washed, the house spickens man, you go to help in the fields. The women leave the little baby at the edge of the field with a quilt put above it so the sun won't harm it. When the baby cries, the woman leaves the hoe or plow to her work in the field and goes to tend it or nurse it. There was usually a little baby or several small children at a time. When the sun is in the middle of the day, it's time for dinner. That'd be like lunch. The women, or the woman leaves for the house and prepares the food. After eating, the men might lay down for a while to rest, but there is no rest for the women. There's always work to be done. In the afternoon, there may be more work in the fields or baking, candle making, soap making, sewing, mending, any of the hundred pressing tasks. And then the cows or the cows must be rounded up and brought home again. As the shadows fall, the cows milked, the, the chickens fed, always something early and late. Wow. I'm uh, worn out just hearing that story. Right? <laughs> you know, I didn't grow up on a farm. I'm about two generations removed from the farm. My grandparents, all, almost all. Uh, grew up on farms. Of course, my husband grew up on a farm. And this is what life was like, you know, even in modern farming, you have, there's work to be done, always work to be done. You have uh, crops to be planted. You have to milk the cows twice a day. You have to can food when it's, when it's ready. Um, and everyone works where it doesn't get done. Right. This isn't, this seems foreign to a lot of us because we just go to the store and buy what we need. Right. But when you can't do that, 
you just have to work everyone together to get everything taken care of. Uh, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. Brent's um, family still had some family members that had a farm and um, it was hard for them to even like come to our wedding or mm-hmm. yes. um, this is in Wisconsin or, you know, it was, it was easier if we could go mm-hmm. and visit them because of that very reason, if they, anytime they were to take any sort of trip, they had to make sure that they had people to take care of everything. They had tons of cows that need to be milked and and whatnot. Yeah. That was true for my in-laws until they sold their farm. Um, we went to see them because they couldn't come. They couldn't leave the farm long enough to come visit us. Um, you know, this is something we've talked about before, and we were talking about this before we got on, but um who makes the money is a, a, a pretty modern and recent preoccupation. Um, and truly, uh, in most of the world today, uh, the question is, what do we need to do so we don't starve? Um, mm-hmm. no, one, no one cares as much about who made the money so long as there's shelter and food and clothing. Like this, It's just, it is a modern preoccupation. Oh, yes. and. And I've said it before, and some people in a certain Facebook group mocked me for it, whatever, they can do that. But we have so many girls in our group from other countries, and Mm -hmm. I've had conversations with so many of them. And it was eye-opening to me. I didn't realize what an American idea all of this was. The wife stays Mm -hmm. home. The wife shouldn't make more money than the husband, blah, blah, blah. And um, like, for instance, we have a, a girl in our group. Uh, from Kenya. Her husband is a pastor there, Reformed Church, and um, she teaches at the school. They struggle horribly financially because it's a very different sort of thing when you're a pastor in an extremely poor area as they are. Mm -hmm. And so, they work together as a family to do what they need to do to survive. Well, I know I've mentioned it before, and we'll get to this a little later too. My mom worked full-time, was the primary breadwinner for our household for much of my my life. Um, and much of that was so that my dad could uh, be a pastor at the churches where he was called and not have to worry about whether or not it was paying enough. Right? That he was free to do the ministry work he was called to do and freed up to do it. Um, and my mom worked so that we had food and um, insurance and all the things that we needed but they were working together to provide for the family. That's one of the things I appreciate about your book mm-hmm. um, was talking about that very thing, families working together for the good of the family. Mm-hmm. And I've said before, other girls in our group, we have, um, it's kind of amazing. We have some people from Russia and from Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And um, I, Brent and I, several years ago, had a, a Russian student come and stay with us. And it's kind of amazing because she was only nine when she stayed with us, but they did this America trip. It was um, with a Christian school Mm -hmm. in Moscow. Anyways, so her family, um, both mom and dad worked, grandma and grandpa lived with them and took care of the kids. And then since I did some research and I found that's very common in Kazakhstan, um, maybe some places in Ukraine, um, I don't really know uh, as much about what the what happens in European countries. But I do know in some post-Soviet countries, mom and dad both work, grandma and grandpa live with them. That's one thing we don't do here in the United States as much having multi-generational households. But in other parts of the world, that's part of what working together for the good of the family means, um, taking care of you know, the parents and grandparents and, and what needs to be done. Some of that here in the U.S. depends, too, on um, culture. So people who are recent or more recent immigrants from different countries, uh, particularly certain countries, are more likely to live in multi-generational ho- generational homes or communities where there's more of that um, living and working to take care of things. So the, the grandparents help take yeah. care of the kids and the kids help take care of the grandparents while the mm-hmm. parents work. And it's, you know, you see that more. In those ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true because I've actually known um quite a few people here in the United States that um do that. Even had um 
girl in our group actually even had, you know, there was a couple generations in her home because got grandma and I think her mom or dad, maybe the other one had died or something, um, you know, and you care for your family. You know, this is where I talk about, and you, you and I have talked about this before, you know, my, um, like I said, my grandparents, both of my grandparents grew up on the farm. Uh, my grandmother started cooking for the family um, preteens. Uh, her, her mother and father both had their own team of horses uh, for working in the field in separate teams. So my great grandmother had her own team of horses working in the field and they would go out to work and my grandmother would stay in the house and get the meals ready so that when they came in, they could eat. Uh, so that was, that was her job. Yeah. Since, and you had talked earlier about mm-hmm. the, the daughters working alongside the father and a, a lot of things. Um, if you, so my, my grand my grandma grew up on a farm. That was my great grandparents farm. And there was nine kids. Well, it was six girls and three boys. So the girls did what needed to be done. My grandma said she um, got the job of filling the bags with corn. I think she said she was nine. You know, that's something that needed to be done. That was going to be her job. That's it, right? It's, there's work and everybody works and the work gets done. When you get to the Industrial Revolution, uh, it really changes a lot of things about work um, and family life and the family economy. So men and women leave the fields and family businesses to work in factories and industries in the city. There were better opportunities and work options. And so families weren't working together. Uh, Family uh, or work and home uh, become kind of separate worlds. Men would then leave the home to work, earn wages. Women would be paid less and had fewer opportunities, tend to stay home. Uh, some women, especially in working class women, would work in factories or in the homes of other people as domestic help if they weren't married. And married women, of course, were expected to take care of their own homes and children and leave paid work to their husbands. So uh, this changes. So instead of an agrarian society where everybody's working to provide, now you have these middle class families. They're not growing their food or producing goods that they need. Men are working for wages that buy the food and goods. And so then the meaning of work changed. So work becomes valuable based on who's earning money or how much money you can earn for it. So men are breadwinners because they're earning money to support the family. And women are still doing a lot of the same work like we read before in a more agrarian society. But it's unpaid work and it becomes um, less valuable to society in, in society's eyes because it's it's not paid work. It's just woman's work, right? And so women, if they did have to work, are then seen as supplementing the economy of the family income. Um, and that didn't matter, you know, even if they were the primary uh, earner for the family, it would still be treated um, in society or viewed in society as less important as the, than men working. Rachel, I'm, I'm curious to ask you this question, but at different times, it wasn't well, at least just from a little bit of reading, it seems it wasn't uncommon at certain classes for there to be household help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, people that helped with the the cooking, the cleaning, the caring for the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know even, you know, some great grandparents and, and whatnot in my family um, had some of that. And it was not looked down upon. It's It's what you did. Right, you know. Yeah, it, it's somewhat ironic um, that you know when you get into the Victorian era, which we'll talk about moving into that now with the industrial age, um, that you get this this idea, the ideal, right, is for you know women to be the angel in the home, the one who's you know kind of upholding the world through her uh, her care of the family, but in order to do all the work that is necessary to take care of a family, um, you have to hire help. And usually that's a woman working outside the home to in someone else's home in order yep. to provide for her family. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to me how, um, how double standard it becomes, right. And, mm-hmm. You know, middle-class women wanted to be able to, this is the ideal that they're, they're 
striving for to be able to be at home and not work outside the home and, and let their husband be the income. Um, working class women, uh, unmarried or widowed women often had to support uh, their families or help support their families. And upper class women relied on nannies, governesses, cooks, maids uh, right. to be these models of domesticity when they're not actually doing any of the domestic work. Well, yeah, I, I know this is probably a horrible example and might even get into what you're about to talk about, but love historical fiction. And mm. there's certain periods in historical fiction where you definitely see um, where the, the woman is the one managing the home by managing the household help and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, other things where she, she is working in a different way right. um, than maybe other times, but she's, you know, making sure that the household runs smoothly and they have lots of people working for the household. So with the industrial revolution and the, the splitting of the domestic sphere and the uh, public sphere of work, um, you know, it becomes expected that you know men are the ones who are going to to inhabit or uh, control the public sphere where work and business and politics and decisions are made, and women are going to be in charge of the domestic sphere and caring for you know creating the the uh, haven of hearth and home, um, and in in this you have kind of a a reviving of older pagan ideas about um, you know domestic sphere and public sphere and men and women and our natures and you know they're being different and suited to different spheres and the idea that marriage and motherhood um, are the purpose and highest calling for a woman um, now I, I want to be careful of what you hear when I say that when I'm not saying um, I am not saying that, women it it's that our women are not called to be wives and mothers that it's not a high calling i'm it is it is a great calling for women um if god gives you a husband and gives you children it's a great blessing uh, but it is not the highest purpose and calling for women that is not the reason that women exist right and that's that's the difference i'm making here and one reason we we um make this point over and over is because there there's almost an idea out there, not that it's said outright, although in some circles, I think it is said outright as if a woman cannot reach her highest level of godliness, unless she's married and has children. Like this is her calling to have, to get married and have children regardless. And this is what is necessary to be a godly woman. That is how it is portrayed. And that's dangerous teaching. In that same vein of what we've been seeing more recently in this discussion about, you know, women and men having different natures, um, there's a quote from a Victorian guy, um, Gustave Le Bon. He says, the day when, misunderstanding the inferior occupations which nature has given her, women leave the home and take part in our battles. On this day, a social revolution will begin and everything that maintains the sacred ties of family will disappear. Now you see in there the, the inferior nature uh, that they believe that women held and that working outside the home, educating women um, would be dangerous uh, to society and to women. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you to talk about that women in education, because that's, mm -hmm. you know, not, not specifically what we're talking about, but definitely part of this discussion. It's absolutely connected. Um, you know, education was con was considered um, uh, overtaxing to a woman's system, to a woman's nature. It would be seen as undermining their femininity and making them masculine to uh, educate women beyond uh, what was necessary for them to be, you know, good wives and mothers. Um, so in this way, a lot, you know, a lot of what was focused on for for women, were for upper class women, would be foreign languages and the arts, and music. Um, uh, these would be things that would be considered appropriate uh, educational goals for women. Um, jobs, 
many jobs would be strictly off limits for women, um, science, engineering, medicine, law, uh, because those careers would be against a woman's nature uh, to be successful in such a environment. Um, she would have to be uh, less feminine, which would make her less desirable to men and less suitable to be a wife and mother. Um, so that's, it's this um, societal belief about men and women um, that's kind of the underlying basic history, basic um, uh, background at the time of the first wave feminist. First wave feminism was kind of a turn on some of these things, right, Rachel? Right. Um, so with the first wave feminists, what they were wanting, among other things, was um, they wanted better education, better employment opportunities for women, so that women who had to provide for themselves had better options. Um, there's a quote that I liked from Harriet Taylor Mill, and she, she said, let every occupation be open to all without favor or discouragement to any, and employments will fall into the hands of those of those men or women who are found by experience to be the most capable of worthily of worthily exercising them. There need be no fear that women will take out of the hands of men any occupation which men perform better than they. So her point is, despite the fears of the time, if everyone is given the opportunity, everyone are given the same opportunities to for education, for pursuing the, the careers or interests that they they have, then people who are best suited to the jobs will get them. And, you know, it won't be that women are simply taking jobs from men. It'll just be that there are women who are capable at certain jobs and men who are capable at certain jobs. And, um, you know, and certainly in a lot of ways, our modern, modern society does operate along this, along these lines. Although, you know, there's still sectors and areas where, there's, there's greater disparity than there should be. You know, thinking about I, um, kind of after our first wave feminism and during war times when women kind of had to go and do jobs mm -hmm. that may, you know, their husbands went off to war. And so it, it actually is maybe a good picture of doing what needs to be done. You know, mm -hmm. we got to, those jobs still need to happen. And um, thinking, you know, I, I talked about my, my grandma and grandpa, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, well, I didn't talk about my grandma. I, it's amazing to me. And I, I would think that it's to the credit of first wave feminism that my grandma born in 1920, and she was kind of right in the middle of nine children in my great grandparents' family, that my grandfather, very conservative Christian insisted that not only his boys go to college, but also his girls. Mm -hmm. Kind of amazing to think. Um, so that would have been in the 1930s that most of them mm -hmm. were going to college. And so it has to be, I would think, to some credit to first wave feminism. Yes. Um, after you know, women get the vote in 1920, and that's really it's you know the right at the end of World War One, and the it's usually considered like the the mark of where first wave feminism ends. Um, there was a lot of change with that. There were many women were pursuing um, uh, education in various fields. You have the first uh, women doctors and lawyers um, that were recognized as doctors and lawyers. Um, so it, it's, it's remarkable. Um, although what happens uh, and I've, I've seen some some really interesting uh, statistics on it. But after after World War II, and you have um, the the men come home from from the war, and women who had been working in the jobs uh, that would, like factory jobs and businesses while while men were away um, are are told that they that the patriotic thing to do now is to go home uh, to leave the, these jobs to men. And set about having babies and families and doing all the um, the domestic things that, that women are suited to, um, which is very interesting. But what happened then uh, after World War II is that uh, women stopped going to college as, at the numbers they had been going. 
And it's not until I want to say the late 60s, early 70s, maybe later, that the number of women going to college um, is back to the the like the 1920s, 1930s uh, levels. Yeah, my mom has told me stories from the 1960s. She was, um, mm-hmm. for some context, she was born 1943. Okay. And um, just in the 1960s, just some of her friends, she went to college and she had, you know, lots of friends that went to college and her sisters went to college. And so she would have been 20, uh, 22. Out, she actually started going to college. Uh, she skipped a grade in school. So she was an early um, graduate of college. So she's probably 21. Um, so still early 1960s, but there were certain jobs that women were allowed to do and certain ones that they weren't. So even at, at that time, so women could be secretaries, um, teachers, nurses, mm-hmm. um, flight attendants. I think it's the main ones I remember. Right. Um, certain factory workers, but you know, it was very, it was very common to have an attitude that, you know, those aren't appropriate jobs for women, even in the 1960s. Right. Right. Um, partly because post-World War II um, and then with the, um, you get this kind of like harkening back to the good old days, which is interesting because people consider that the good old days from today. And, and the truth is there never really were any good old days. Uh, n- not really. Um, but they were, there's this desire to go back to a, you know, a, a simpler, peaceful time when, you know, everyone knew their place and did the things that they're supposed to do. And, you know, and I'm saying all that in quotes and that holds over for a while um, into the sixties and in seventies, uh, which is when you begin to get the second wave feminist start uh, and a lot of their concerns um when you separate out the concerns of the the second wave feminists from the sexual revolution, um, were a lot of what they were concerned about were employment opportunities. Um, like you mentioned, there were jobs that women just couldn't get. There was also legal discrimination against women. Uh, they could, you know, not hire women for certain jobs, or you know, hire uh, a man instead of a woman for a job simply because they wanted to. And uh, salaries were lower for women for the same work. Um, you know, hearing my mom, you know, for my, to give my background, my parents were born in 52. So my mom's first, uh, first full-time work um, would have been very early 70s. My parents married in 73. So I think it's around 73, 74 when she was getting a job. And, you know, they ask things like, when was your last period? This is like in the Yes, my mom told me this too. Mm -hmm. Yep. Ask when was your last period? Because they wanted to know whether or not you were pregnant. Because if you're pregnant, it was assumed you would leave. And if you got, if you were married and got pregnant and found out you were pregnant and you were working, you might have to hide the pregnancy so that that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't lose your job. And, um. My mom actually has stories with some of her friends, and this was in the late 1960s, where they wouldn't, that they would not hire young married women. Right. For the, for the very reason that you're, t- you're talking about, because right. we don't want a woman that's going to get pregnant and leave. Right. Um, along the same lines, uh, you know, the number of times that women, this is stories that my mom's told me too, but that women would... Um, train uh, newer employees, men, and then have the guys that they trained be promoted over them. Um, very common. And very, very common. Very, I've very heard that common. Too. Uh, and what they were often told when asked is that, oh, well, he has a family to support, which is true. I'm sure he did. Mm-hmm. Right. But so did mm-hmm. my mom. <laughs> and so did the other women right. and, and families right. they were supporting. You know? So under the second wave feminists, uh, you get the um, Title VII of the 64 Civil Rights Act and the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 78, which stopped employers from discriminating on the basis of sex. Uh, so you couldn't ask things like whether a woman was married or pregnant or had children, and you couldn't deny a woman her job back after uh, maternity leave. And those were considerable changes that happened. Um 
And that's kind of the backdrop as you come into the 80s, um, the backdrop of the conservative groups um, like CBMW who were concerned about what was happening with um, home life and divorce and women uh, and uh, children being put in daycare and uh, just things were changing in society and they were concerned about what they were, people were concerned about what they were seeing in society and CBMW in their uh, Danvers statement in recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, you see them talking about, uh, they blame feminism for all these problems that they see uh, and that it's, it was destroying the fundamental differences between men and women. And so we needed a proper, a return to the proper, you know, complementarian definitions of masculinity and femininity and appropriate roles for men and women in order to um, uh, restore society and the church and the home uh, to the proper, proper um, biblical order of things. And it amazes me, I, I should, was talking to Rachel about this before we recorded that so much of that recovering biblical manhood and womanhood is just a very American view. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work in other countries. Women in our group um, from other countries have talked to me about that. Like, this is not how our culture works. Right. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, and you and I in other episodes and other discussions, um, you know, there isn't complete agreement within conservative Christians about these ideas. Um, some groups believe that women can work outside the home. Some believe they shouldn't at all. Others say things like, well, it's okay, certain circumstances or situations, but it's not ideal. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of disagreement about how to apply um, biblical guidelines to this area of uh, marriage in the home. Um, and just to make a little point, Rachel and I are both stay-at-home wife and mothers, mm -hmm. so we're not disparaging. No, not doing at all. That at all. No, no. Um, no, this very much what we're talking about are ideas or attitudes surrounding work and women and what's appropriate and what's not. Um, you know, I am. Very this is absolutely biblical, and you're sinning. If you don't right. do that, we're talking right. against those ideas. Right. Um, you know, that's, as Colleen said, you know, I'm very thankful to be um, a wife and a mother. And I'm very thankful to have been able to stay home. Um, although I have also, you know, worked quite a bit from the home um, to help make ends meet and to take care of things as well. So, you know, it, again, as we'll talk about late in a minute, um, and as we've said already, it's, it's about, taking care of your family. Um, and that's a, what that's going to look like. It's going to be different for different families. So often what you hear uh, either directly or indirectly in a lot of the more conservative uh, areas is that this idea that men uh, may have many different callings, um, maybe um, pastors, business owners, missionaries, professors, or whatever career. And then they're also, they may be fathers as well as having all these calling because men are given work. God gives men work to do, um, but women are called to, to help with that work. And so we help by having children and taking care of the home. And um, our goals or priorities are then aren't separate from what our husband or if we're not married yet, our fathers want what we're doing then is um, we are fulfilling our one calling which is motherhood and family. Um, and again, we're not saying that it's not a good calling. It's a very good calling. It's a very good role, a very good place um, for those of us who have been blessed to have husbands and children. Um, what a great blessing. What we're talking about, again, is this idea that that is, you know, the highest, the most primary, or the only thing that women are called to do. And saying that's not the right way to understand that. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting though, as, as you mentioned, talking about women that live in other countries, it, it really is a, 
uh, unattainable ideal for many families, this idea that, you know, it's a one, one income home and wife can stay home and take care of the children and the husband goes off to work and comes home with money. It's just, there are lots and lots of families, uh, good, godly Christian families, where this is never going to be an option for them. And we should not treat it like they are having, they have some kind of, you know, secondary or lower class or uh, lower importance family because they can't man- manage this ideal, right? This extra biblical ideal. Um, you know, it's it's just not, um, it's not feasible for a lot of people. Yeah. And there, there's so many factors that contribute to, um, to this, you know, there's just, it's, there's a lot of things in life that are complicated and not necessarily mm-hmm. black and white. Yes. Um, and I think we do damage when we make things black and white that aren't black and white in scripture. Exactly. Um, and that's where I think that the most helpful thing for us is to consider work uh, in terms of Christian liberty and personal decisions. And we see from scripture, uh, men and women are made in God's image, given the tasks to uh, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. Um, these are given to both of them, man and woman together, because they need each other to work together. Um, and you know that working together is true uh, in the home and in marriage, but it's also true uh, in the church and in society that we, we need to work together and we need each other. And you know, so, as we saw other examples earlier, we have some basic guidelines um, of what people do um, and how marriage should work, what um, how things work in the church. But within those guidelines, uh, marriages can look considerably different. We have different gifts, different needs. We have uh, seasons of life and responsibilities. And challenges uh, that will affect our marriages uh, for those of us who are married, um, and seasons of life and challenges and uh, gifts and needs. These apply to all of us, married or single. Um, we we look around at our lives and say, "Who should do what?" Well, it's going to depend. It's going to depend on the needs of the people that we're taking care of. It's going to depend on our gifts and our callings and our abilities. And it may change um, in different stages of our life. You know, I, I was thinking about this just this morning. Mm-hmm. And like, for instance, you know, we're going to talk about who does what. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's definitely a better idea that I do the cooking in our house. Sure. <laughs> but, um, I'm better at it, whatever. I enjoy it. We have friends that he is just this amazing cook. He's worked as a chef. And she, he does most of the cooking. He loves it. He's, he's not any less masculine because he, he cooks the dinner. And if you even think about it, some of the most famous chefs are men. Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of strange that we would have some crazy idea that only women should cook. Well, you know, it's interesting about that. Um, it's true with, you know, we, we treat things like cooking that way. We treat um, the making of clothing, right? So if you... So that's that's for women. If you're a tailor, that's for men, right? Yes, the, I know. It's so crazy. The dividing line usually is if you get paid for it and if you get paid well for it. So jobs that pay well are for men. And it's still true in the way we consider work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a good example of that is uh, like at the time of the reformers, and you see this with uh, Katie Luther, uh, mm-hmm. she brew. Uh, she brewed the beer for the family. That was one of the, the roles for um, or one of the, the jobs that women were expected to do as part of a household was to brew beer. Um, and that was true until brewing beer became an industry. And then it became oh, interesting. men to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it went from being something that you know, it would be a housewife role or job to mm-hmm. an industry, a paying industry, and it became men's work. Um, so I love this quote, and I use this in my books from Michael Horton. He says, beyond scripture, there is godly wisdom and Christian liberty. Biblical principles focus on what it means to live in Christ by his word and spirit. And even in those few passages that speak directly to men and women, there will be legitimate diversity in application. 
so good. Isn't it? It's just, it really summarizes this discussion. We have some guidelines, but we have, and we all have, um, you know, the spirit indwelling and, and working in us. So we have wisdom and uh, we're trying to live as Christ would have us, but we all have uh, the, the liberty in Christ to make decisions about things that are not matters of salvation. And these are not matters of salvation. Right. Boy, we just may, and, but in some circles, these things are elevated as if they're the most important things. Oh, totally. Bizarre. Being a provider, um, based on what we saw in the biblical examples and other things that we've seen looking through the history, it's not exclusively masculine or for men. Um, men and women are both called to provide for the needs of others. Um, scripture does not address the question of who makes the most money in the household. And um, it would be wrong for a man to refuse to work and provide for his family. Um, but that doesn't mean that men are the only ones called to, or the only ones expected to help and take care of their families. Um, we all have a responsibility to provide for others, and how that works is going to be a matter of Christian liberty, depending on the family. Again, there's so many factors. And one of the things I think about, you've probably seen this too, Rachel, where some circles that say, well, a woman shouldn't work outside the home. But then you say, but what about this situation? Oh, well, there might be an exception there. You know, it's just made up rules. I mean, it really is what it is. Right. My favorite one of those is it's okay for a woman to work if she's putting her husband through seminary. Oh, I didn't know that one. Oh, yeah. In my exceptions list. (laughs) In the exceptions, it is okay for a woman to work if she's putting her husband through seminary. So, if you are a woman and you have a job and that's how you help take care of your family, that is a perfectly valid and Christian thing to be doing. If you're a woman who, um, who works primarily in the home, uh, and whose husband works outside the home, and you take care of the children, that is also a perfectly biblical and Christian thing to be doing. Um, each of us have to make the decisions about what's right for us as a family. And, you know, I think this is an area where we should show each other a lot of grace. As I, one of the things I say in the conclusion of my book is that we were created to work together in families and communities. And all the work we do inside and outside the home should be done to to glorify God, who is ultimately the master we all serve. Yeah, it goes back to what we've talked about so many times with the doctrine of vocation, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, okay, this is, I I have this C.S. Lewis quote, and it it just, um, I I read this during the war, C.S. Lewis did these like little talks on the radio. And I found this one, but I just thought, and there was this one about the atomic bomb, um, but I think it fits into our discussion here. Just one little, um, sure. he, he says, if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Anyways, and this is this is life that we we work hard, we do it to the glory of God, and it's going to look different for different people. Mm-hmm. I think we really waste an incredible amount of time obsessing over s- such things. One of the things um, that I really appreciate about uh, what our pastor has talked about is the fact that all all believers have the spirit indwelling. And so all of us have um, have the wisdom to make decisions and have to make decisions based on um, our understanding of scripture and of the world. And we're going to make different decisions at times, but that's okay. You know? Yeah. We need to have more respect and understanding and grace with one another. Mm-hmm. And, and we're very judgmental people. Why oh, are we, I terribly. think, in the church, one of the worst. And it's just, it's not fruitful. It accomplishes literally nothing. Well, I'm going to put in the episode notes um, Rachel's book, because if you haven't read it, you should, because it digs into this and so much more beyond authority and submission. And she looks at men and women in culture, in um, the church, um, in the home, and mm-hmm. has has done a good job with looking at it from a biblical perspective without adding things that are not biblical black and white ideals. 
which I appreciate because I think a lot of us um, are really trying to think through these things and think about how we think through these things. So, well, we will see you next week.